we all have food insecurity around us, right? Like no matter where we live, wherever our kids go to school, there are, you know, in, in my own kids' school, there are kids who are food insecure and who are reliant on on various forms of, of food assistance to just, you know, make sure that families have food on the table. Welcome to the Responsibly Different Podcast, sharing stories and insights from people harnessing purchasing power to improve the world. According to the USDA, in 2020, over 38 million people, including over 12 million children, were food insecure in the United States. That's one in eight people and one in six children facing food insecurity every day. Today's guest is Kirsten Science Toby, co-founder and chief impact officer at Revolution Foods. Kirsten and her co-founder Kristen set out to use business to help solve food insecurity through the education system. Kirsten was a teacher, researcher, and garden educator, and witnessed firsthand the value and importance of ensuring all students have access to not just food, but nutritious meals that would set students up for success. Founded back in 2006 and a certified B Corp since 2011, today Revolution Foods employs over 1,000 people, provides meals to over 2,500 schools, municipalities, and customer sites in 23 states. They have six culinary centers that produce and deliver freshly prepared, delicious, and affordable food products every day. Kirsten shares with us the Revolution Foods journey and how omnipresent food insecurity is in all our communities across the United States. Can you share with us the story of how Revolution Foods came to be? Yeah. So we started the company in 2006. My co-founder, Kristen, and I had actually met in grad school um, at UC Berkeley. And we were uh, we both had come in from kind of a couple of different backgrounds. I had spent a lot of my career in education as well as in nonprofits, cared a lot about food and nutrition. She had come from you know both kind of education, but also had sort of a business background that you know, and, and it really brought us together. We, we were brought together around the the shared idea that, you know, nutrition is a significant kind of building block for success for kids in particular, kids in schools. And, um, and we recognized that there were, you know, there's a huge population of kids in our country who, you know, don't have access to the highest quality nutrition for a, a variety of different reasons. You know, I think it's something like 13 million kids in our country are food insecure today. A third of Kids in, in underserved communities are, you know, at risk of contracting type 2 diabetes or and are, you know, suffering disproportionately from all the other kind of, you know, avoidable um, health conditions like obesity and heart disease and those sorts of things. And we, you know, really saw the the connection between food and nutrition and and setting kids up for success in uh, in school and kind of came, spent a lot of time talking with uh, with folks in the school and education community and recognized that there was a sort of a gap in the marketplace for uh, around kind of creating a solution for particularly schools who don't have kitchens to be able to provide high quality meals to their kids who qualify for free lunch at school. I'm curious, are there a lot of schools that don't have uh, kitchens? There are a lot of schools that don't have kitchens. So, I mean, if you think about sort of your traditional, you know, lunchroom cafeteria that, that, you know, some of us grew up with, many of those kitchens have, have either become, you know, defunct, gone, you know, gone sort of stale in, 
as you know, the food industry has become more and more kind of, you know, processed and centralized and, you know, you can kind of buy things that are, that are ready to heat and serve. Um, but also, you know, when, when we were first starting, we were looking specifically at charter schools, which were, you know, a, a whole kind of network of schools that had started up around, you know, wanting to make wanting to improve education and, and sort of reform the education system. But they were starting in, you know, they were renting out industrial buildings to house their schools. They were, you know, working out of churches. They were working in, um, you know, retail storefronts and uh, and all kinds of facilities that were not, you know, in originally intended to be school facilities. And so um, so we, we built our initial product platform around, you know, being able to around charter schools who were looking for a solution for, you know, really fresh food being produced near where they were <laughs> educating their kids, but not, you know, the, the, the message we heard from school leaders was, you know, I, I got into the, to, you know, starting a school or leading a school because I'm, you know, great at managing teachers, building curriculum, educating kids, but I don't want to run a restaurant at the same time. <laughs> um, mm. So they really wanted a solution that was, that would sort of take the food part of the equation and, you know, out of their hands, but, um, but not out of their hands to the extent that, you know, they're just kind of forgetting about it. That's really cool. And now I know for a lot of folks, when they kind of set out to start a venture to solve a problem like, like you all have, there's this decision of, do we build a nonprofit or do we create more of a for-profit enterprise? And I know that that's a really challenging space for a lot of folks to navigate. Was that something that you all bumped into? And, and if so, how did you navigate that? For sure. So we we spent um, quite a bit of time, you know, as we were kind of writing the business plan, trying to figure out how to structure the company. We looked at creating it as a nonprofit because we were very focused around a mission. Um, we, we looked at structuring it as kind of like a project, you know, collaboration with a big corporation, we looked at and then we looked at starting it as an independent for profit business. And, you know, this was 17 years ago, when we were having these conversations. And at that time, there, you know, the language around and and even some of the structures around social enterprise and um, that sort of thing, impact investing, like those weren't even (laughs) words that were being commonly used in the um, in the business space, at least. And we, but we sort of had this notion that we could create a for-profit business that would also deliver a social value and and deliver on a mission. And so we, um, and and we looked at you know as as we when we when we did explore the idea of creating a nonprofit, we started talking to potential funders. And what we found was that in the philanthropic space, funders weren't really interested in sort of like investing in a startup. <laughs> and, you know, I think that, you know, philanthropy really likes to sort of invest in proven models. And, mm. um, and we, we, you know, in the, the time that we explored that path, we just, we couldn't find philanthropists who were like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, fund this 10 page business plan <laughs> and, and help you guys to learn. But we did find that kind of capital in the, in the private sector, you know, that there, there are venture capital, angel investors, you know, folks who really are kind of willing to take a risk with their capital and willing to to help to fund a, a, a true startup and, you know, put put some both, you know, funding and resources and um and you know all of the other things that kind of come with with investors, you know, kind of put that behind a, a new concept. That's really cool. Uh and and speaking of business models, you all became a certified B Corp all the way back in 2011, which I feel like was very much in the early wave of when B Corp was becoming a thing. I'm curious, how did y'all hear about it and why was it important for you to certify and, and continue to recertify it through over the years? Yeah, well we um I mean we we learned about the B Corp certification early on. I think I think we and the B Lab team started right around the same year, started our our organization. So we feel like we kind of grew up to Together. 
And, you know, the world of social enterprise is pretty small. So it was, you know, through kind of being, being an, an, you know, one of the kind of early companies looking to really scale nationally in this, in this kind of social enterprise sector, we, uh, we heard about the B Corp certification. We thought, you know, this would be a great way for us to demonstrate to our stakeholders, both, you know, kind of internal board investors, but also external customers, potential partners, et cetera, that, you know, that we are mission-driven and kind of impact-focused all the way through our core and having that kind of third-party certification of that, of, of you know, that focus uh, has always been really valuable to us. So we became a certified B Corp in 2011 and we've, we've recertified many times since then. And then when, uh, when the public benefit corporation possibility became a, a reality, we actually converted to a, a public benefit corporation. This actually just happened um, last year. So, you know, a, about six months ago, we made the, the full conversion to, you know, now our, our legal structure is a public benefit corporation in the state of Delaware. That's awesome. That's so cool. I'm curious, what, what has been most rewarding and most challenging about navigating the, the B-Impact assessment and, and maintaining that certification? Well, so the, the B-Impact assessment is, a, it's, a, it's an extensive certification to go through. Um, we just actually went through it um, over the last few months and, and, and it's gotten more and more kind of rigorous over the years. So, you know, when it first, when we first did it, there was kind of one assessment that all companies took. Now there's, you know, there are, there are kind of industry specific sets of questions. There are size and scale specific sets of questions. So, you know, now that we employ close to a thousand people, we have, you know, a very different set of kind of parameters around employment practices that we have to answer questions uh, around versus a, you know, a company of four or five people who are all sitting in one office. So as, as our company has grown, you know, the, the impact assessment has actually kind of grown alongside us. Um, and so it's, but it's, it, it always, and I always love kind of getting our team around the table to work through the, the assessment because it's, because it helps us to sort of think through what, what, where we want to focus our time and efforts around some of our, some of the different programs that the B impact assessment measures. And it also just, it gets conversations started around, you know, where do we want to push ourselves to be better? Where, where have we done a great job? You know, because there are the sort of five different areas that you're answering questions about, you know, we, we always kind of score higher in some areas than others, you know, like our governance is always really high. Our community impact is always really high, but there's a lot we could still be doing on environmental sustainability or other, or other things. So, so it's, it's all, it's just a really good sort of outside looking in snapshot of, of our, you know, how we approach impact, where we can be better and where we're already doing a great job. Absolutely. And, you know, I was reading about you all and many of the articles written about you reference that you have a clean label supply chain that serves thousands of meals every day to kids across the United States. I'm, I'm curious, what is a clean label supply chain and how do you maintain that at scale? Yeah, so this was something we put in place when we first started. We said, you know, we need to we need to make sure we're clear about sort of what sets apart our food from other approaches. And so, you know, for us, there's kind of the nutrition piece of that, which is, you know, everybody can read a nutrition label on a meal or on a, a food product. But, you know, we wanted to kind of go beyond nutrition. So nutrition is, is you know, a baseline of, of what we provide. But then, you know, when we when we looked at like, why do people shop at Whole Foods versus a conventional grocery store? Or, you know, why do people buy sort of a natural product versus a, you know, a more conventional one? 
we looked at kind of what is what is it that are driving people to make those decisions and and you know we came up with and we we engaged some kind of industry experts in helping us to think through all the different pieces of this but you know it's it's things like not allowing high fructose corn syrup or artificial sweeteners into our products it's it's really a, a set of standards around making sure that food is sort of as whole and unadulterated as possible <laughs> so you know no artificial colors there's a whole host of artificial preservatives that we have, you know, banned from our supply chain. There are, you know, additives in the, you know, and processing agents that can get added into foods when they when they become, you know, highly processed. And so we've, so in some cases, we're we're sort of not allowing processing agents because we don't want to have processed food. But if we just say it's not processed food, people don't necessarily know what that means. So. So we've, we've kind of come up with this list of ingredients that, that we don't allow into our supply chain. And we call that clean label just because it's, it's easy for people to understand. That's amazing. And I, and I feel like that's so important, especially where so much of your focus is on kids and students, right? And I feel like so often it's pumped full of colors and like, you know, all of that. Uh, but you serve more than just kids too, right? I mean, I, I was reading that you also serve um, like senior housing and, and other, can you speak a little bit to some of the other folks you serve as well? Yeah. So we, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, you know, historically we were very focused on kids in the K through 12, um, you know, education system. And, and as, and it was actually when we, we've, we've done a little bit of work with seniors and, and other um, adult programs, but when COVID hit a couple of years ago, what we found was that cities and counties and um, you know, municipalities started realizing that they had food insecure people who were either out of work, you know, food insecure because they couldn't get to the grocery store, it was unsafe for them to get to the grocery store, or, you know, needing to shelter in place and, and be, you know, not, not leave a, a certain area um, because of COVID. And so, you know, many cities and counties started actually feeding food insecure adults in ways that they never had before. So, you know, we, we kind of stepped in partly because schools were, were, were not in, in session anymore. We did continue to serve schools in a, in a lot of different ways, but that became a very different way of serving schools where we were packaging meals into boxes and getting them onto school buses and, and that sort of thing versus putting the meals into the cafeteria. But we you know, had the opportunity to make our meals accessible to you know, adults and seniors um, that were food insecure or, or otherwise kind of in need of a, of a food solution because of the, the pandemic. And that that sort of helped us to realize that, you know, our capabilities in creating and, and producing and delivering fresh, healthy meals didn't just need to be limited to, you know, kids in schools. So we've, you know, we've continued to do some of that adult, some of those adult meal programs that one of the challenges is that as the, you know, fortunately, as the pandemic has, has sort of, you know, subsided in some ways, you know, some of that funding from, you know, government agencies and things like that has kind of been redirected to other programs. So now there are now we're, we're working on kind of how do we continue to make food accessible to those food insecure adults. And there are programs under Medicare and Medicaid, you know, health insurers are starting to use food as a medicine, you know, sort of as, as a source of, of uh, preventive medicine for their, you know, more kind of vulnerable patients. So it's, I would say it's, it's, we're kind of working through that pivot from the pandemic era of, you know, a lot of meals being able to be, you know, accessible to adults to now, you know, figuring out which government programs are going to continue and which, which are going to kind of evolve into 
new new forms of food assistance for adults and seniors. That's really cool. And so are you working primarily with municipalities in in that work? That that work has historically been with municipalities, counties and and then nonprofits also. So you know think you think about like Meals on Wheels and those kinds of programs that uh, that provide access to to healthy meals, you know, those are those are all different kinds of of partners that we work with that um that can help make that connection between you know, food and and food insecure adults. Wow, that's so cool. And, you know, speaking of, I'd I'd love to dig a little deeper into food insecurity. Can you speak to how food insecurity impacts students and their families? Yeah, I mean, so what's what's sort of staggering is that I think the last I saw one in eight Americans is food insecure. So that's 42 million people around the country one in six children, so 13 million children in the U.S. were seen as food insecure in 2021. So, you know, it it essentially means that we all have food insecurity around us, right? Like no matter where we live, wherever our kids go to school, there are, you know, in in my own kids' school, there are kids who are food insecure and who are reliant on on various forms of, of food assistance to just, you know, make sure that families have food on the table so I, I what's and what the, I think the pandemic also helped to bring to you know much more um, much more clear light is that food insecurity is not necessarily something that you're either in or you're out of. There are people and families who are kind of dipping in and out of food insecurity on a weekly, monthly basis. There are people who are food insecure at the end of every month when the paycheck starts running dry. There are there are families who are food insecure seasonally um, because of seasonal work and, you know, kind of the ebbs and flows of the, of the job market. So I think, you know, what it ends up looking like and what's, what's challenging for kids is that there might be kids who qualify for a free lunch at school. So that's what the national school lunch program provides is, you know, free lunch for, for kids who qualify, but there might be kids who, who, whose families don't qualify for free lunches in August when school starts. But by December, they've fallen back into poverty. And it's a whole bureaucratic kind of paperwork process for them to reapply, submit their paperwork, tell the school that, they've, that their income level has dropped so that their kids can start getting free meals again at school. So what we've, one of the things that we've seen, you know, a positive kind of outcome of, of you know, some of what's happened through the pandemic and, and government programs having more flexibility through the pandemic time is that, you know, a state like California said, you know, state leg- legislature said, we want to make sure that no matter what, all kids can get free meals at school, you know, regardless of their income level, regardless of, and, you know, the, the counter argument to that has always been, well, why would you give free meals to rich kids? Well, you know, we give free education to rich kids. <laughs> we let them, we let them go to public Fair. schools. We give them textbooks. We give them, you know, we, so it's, I think there's, there's the, the sort of conversation around school food is, is I think in, in some places starting to become much more of sort of, it's a, it's a right, not a, not a privilege kind of a thing. And, and so that's where, you know, in a state like California now, you know, kids who are kind of dipping in and out of that food insecurity line, they, they know that they're going to be able to get a free meal at school, no matter what their parents paycheck was that week or that month. And so there's this great kind of equalizer, I think, that happens when policies like that can be put in place. And, you know, it's not a solution to food insecurity across the board, but it certainly can help to sort of ease the ease the burden of it for families. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends and and family that are educators and and work in the education space, especially in rural parts of the country. 
And a huge thing that comes up when talking about healthy food and, and why it's not as accessible is often because of a lack of funding. I'm curious, can you share with us some of the challenges that are created by a lack of funding at the local, state, and, and national level? Yeah. Well, so what's the, 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 the most of the school meals are funded at the federal level by the National School Lunch Program. One of the challenges of that is that, you know, whether you're in rural Kansas or, you know, inner city New York, the reimbursement level for a meal is the same. And so so there's there may not be a lack of funding in one place relative to the other place, but the but the sort of relative purchasing power of that funding can be very different. And, you know, if you're in a place where, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables are very expensive to to access just because of where you are, because the truck only comes through once a week or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, that $3.60 or whatever the, the reimbursement rate is for a lunch just can't go as far if you're in a if you're in a more remote rural area or if you're in a, you know, a, a place that, you know, whether you call them food deserts or, you know, places where there's less access. Um, so that's that can be one of the challenges. There are some states and a few municipalities that have that have kind of passed a, an additional reimbursement on top of like if you're in Alaska or Hawaii, you get more reimbursement um, at the federal level, actually. But um, but the the, you know, kind of funding for for the school meals, it's, it's really just a, it's kind of a purchasing power and also like the cost of labor in different places is very different. And so, you know, that meal reimbursement has to cover not just the cost of your food if you're if you're, you know, making food for a school, but also the cost of the labor to deliver it. That makes sense. And so speaking of some of those solutions, what are some of those solutions, whether it's public policy or other opportunities to help support solving the problem of food insecurity? Well, so I think that there's one of the one of the, I think, sort of interesting new developments in the in the sort of like, you know, field of of people who study food insecurity is that people are starting to increasingly talk about nutrition security and not just food security. So, mm. you know, food security is basically like, do you have enough calories to survive? Um, and can you, you know, can you pay for enough calories to, to keep your family, um, you know, fed nutrition security is, do you have the, the actual you know, quality of food and balance of, of food to live a healthy life and to kind of, you know, set your, your family up for, uh, for a healthy outcome long-term. So I think when you when you think when when I think about sort of what are the solutions to to food insecurity, I, I have to think about how do you move from just the concept of food insecurity to nutrition security, and how do we make sure that when we have government assistance for you know food access, how do we make sure that that either you know I, I don't I don't necessarily think it has to kind of mandate certain nutrition parameters, but how can it enable certain nutrition parameters like. You know, there have been programs uh, through SNAP that, you know, which is sort of the uh, food stamps programs that make your that kind of double your purchasing power if you're purchasing fresh fruits and vegetables, for example. So that's that that's a a really good example of like, how do you how do you make a, a food security program, you know, kind of promote nutrition in a in a really positive way? I do think in the in the realm of kind of school meals, having, you know, more universal access to school meals as we talked about earlier, is a is a really powerful tool in kind of leveling the playing field and 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 helping people who are in that on that cusp of food insecurity, which is, you know, it's a pretty wide band of, of folks who can kind of fall in and out of the 
the qualification um, and for whom the, the paperwork and the administrative burden is a real barrier to access. And then, you know, I think that there's, I think that there's kind of a, a bigger picture issue around, you know, just making sure that we're not just make, I think, you know, feeding kids in schools is a, is a huge and a very important tool for families. I don't know that we've kind of, that we as a, as a country have kind of cracked the code on, on adult food insecurity solutions. You know, we do have the SNAP program, which provides, you know, kind of money for, for groceries. But when you think about for people who don't have the ability to cook or don't have, um, or have limitations on their access to grocery stores and that sort of thing, I think there's, there's still a lot of room for innovation in, you know, thinking through how to how to kind of create more flexibility in some of the some of the programs that are available for adults that are food insecure. Do you know of anyone else that's kind of working on that for like just adult access or, or just some of those other concepts you mentioned? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, I mean, there there is work being done. Um, like I said earlier, like Medicare and Medicaid mm-hmm. um, dollars are are being given more flexibility to provide to provide meals as a form of kind of, you know, medicine, you know, this, this whole kind of field of food as medicine is a, is an emerging field. I think that there is in order for food as medicine to really kind of take off as a concept, it has to kind of permeate the entire medical field because you need to have actually, you know, doctors and medical practitioners and nurses who are actually screening their patients for food insecurity, as well as for blood pressure and, you know, blood sugar levels and, and those sorts of things. Because I I think one of our, one of the challenges in our country is that we've kind of siloed medicine into one bucket and we've siloed the food industry into another kind of, you know, area. And you have some very forward thinking, you know, medical institutions and medical practitioners that are seeing how food can be a real kind of tool for wellness but it's not necessarily taught in medical school, right? Or or institutionalized by the American Medical Association um, in in as robust a way as I think it could be. That's cool. I mean, is there any legislation that you know of that I mean beyond Medicare and, and Medicaid uh, that is working on some of these issues, or or that folks can lend their voice to? Yeah. So um, I, I do think so. I, I would I would start with in you know the. The, our focus area, which is in school meals, there is um, there's legislation being debated uh, that will that would basically kind of take some of the pandemic era programs and make them more permanent um, in terms of giving more flexibility to school districts for how they get their meals to their students. So you know the, the Congress gave the USDA the the ability to kind of waive some of the requirements of the of the school meals programs during the pandemic. So they said, you know, kids don't necessarily have to be in, you know, at a school site to be able to have access to an after school supper. So that's a that's a really important one that legislatively could increase access to a third meal of the day for a lot of kids in this country. There are, you know, as I as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, states that are passing universal meal programs. So California has passed one, Maine has passed one, Colorado is considering one right now. You know, that if if that were to be considered as a as a federal program, it could have a, a huge impact. I think I mean it has been introduced a few times and and hasn't gotten enough traction, but I think the more states that can kind of demonstrate that, you know, we can if we feed all kids, it actually does kind of lift the whole, you know, lift all ships rather than having it be seen as this, oh, we're going to feed, we're going to feed rich kids. And that's, you know, that's not where we want to put our tax dollars. That's, that's another piece of legislation. 
And then I would, I would just encourage people to follow, um, share our strength and no kid hungry, which are, you know, great kind of advocacy, advocacy organizations that are, that are always kind of on the forefront of, of advocating for the right thing when it comes to food, nutrition access, um, and, and food security programs. Are there other actions that our listeners can take to help be part of the solution of ending food insecurity? So I think, you know, I, I do think just to the extent that, that folks talk to their local and, you know, elected officials, um, tell them they care about food, uh, school food um, and school food programs, because I think it's, you know, these tend to be a program that's sort of it's out there, but it's kind of taken for granted. And I don't think elected officials think of school food as like a, an issue that people vote on necessarily. So I think, you know, the, the more that we can make sure that our, our elected officials understand that, you know, this is an this is an issue that's important to everybody, you know, whether you're regardless of your income level, regardless of kind of where you live, you know, the, having a food secure community is um, is incredibly important. And school meals are a way to address that for a large portion of our population. And then I do think check always sort of staying on top of what Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry are advocating for. Feeding America also does a lot of great advocacy and will also will often have like letters that you can sign on to for, for specific congressional actions. And then I think, you know, following Revolution Foods and kind of what we're doing, you know, we're not an advocacy organization, but we're, you know, trying to trying to be on the forefront of at least, you know, piloting innovative solutions would be another another place to follow. That's awesome. And I'm curious what, um, speaking of those innovative solutions and the things that you all are doing, can you share maybe a little peek behind the curtain as to what you all are cooking up? Yeah. Well, so one program that we're actually, um, we are a partner uh, in this program in Colorado is is kind of one of these programs I'm talking about where it, the a, an organization called the Colorado Food Cluster um, has been delivering meals to food insecure families in the Denver metro area and kind of surrounding regions and and these are meals that are after school suppers for kids who qualify for free meals at school and this program started in the pandemic through some of the USDA waivers that were put into place that said you know kids can access this third meal of of the day even if they're not physically at a school site right now you know with the with these waivers ending you know, all of these, there's, you know, 5,000 families receiving these meals currently, and there's more on the waiting list. With those waivers ending at the end of June, those families are going to stop receiving those meals. And so we sort of see, you know, this kind of an organization, this, this Colorado-based um, nonprofit, as, you know, that's, that's the forefront of food access, right? Like they've come up with an innovative solution. They kind of leverage some of the flexibilities of the pandemic era programs and we really need to learn from that to say, you know, it's not like because the pandemic is, is, has sort of subsided and schools are open. It's not like those kids are any less food insecure. But, you know, now saying that they have to be on, on a school site to eat this third meal of the day is, you know, it's a, it's a logistical challenge for the families. Many of the schools don't have after school programs in place to keep those kids at school. So we just we say that as a really powerful kind of case study of, you know, this is this is a, an innovative program. And, you know, should have the ability to continue on existing. And, you know, I think that we've been trying to kind of bring attention to it through, you know, through elected officials and, you know, other folks who can you know, see what's happening and see the impact um, and see that, you know, this is this is where this is kind of how policy should be written is to look at programs that are working. And then, you know, how can we encourage more of those to to be put into place. Absolutely. I love that. That is so cool. And I, the thing that I, at listening to you talk is the thing I keep 
in mind is not only are you getting meals to folks, but they're nutrient dense meals, right? Like they're those clean label meals. And I'm just so curious, how did creating that supply chain, how did you navigate that? I feel like that had to have been challenging when so much, when people are trying to feed the masses becomes overprocessed and and we lose a lot of that nutritional value. Yeah. I mean, that building the supply chain has been, you know, it's been a lot of the work that we've done over the last 15 years. You know, we've, when we set out with our clean label standards, we could kind of only go to companies that were already kind of in the natural food industry, right? Like companies that were supplying whole foods and other natural, um, natural kind of retail channels. And so when we first started, we would go to these suppliers and they would say, well, we have a retail pack of, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the product is, sliced turkey for turkey sandwiches. And so we used to, you know, have to buy like cases of, of little packs of eight slices of turkey and cut them open and, and make the sandwiches. But over time, you know, we were able to work with, with suppliers, you know, both new suppliers to say, hey, now you know, as we've gotten to a large enough scale, you know, we can ask them to package things in different ways so that it's, you know, reduces the waste and, um, and makes the whole process more efficient. And we've also been able to take some of those smaller suppliers and, and say, hey, with, you know, with our growth comes growth for you. And, you know, let's figure out ways to grow together. So that's, it's kind of a, a two way, you know, there's a bit of a push and a bit of a pull in supply chain, but it's, it's, you know, always, always a challenge. I think, you know, one of the other challenges in, in building a supply chain is, is sort of figuring out where do you, where do you work with local and regional suppliers and where do you need to go to more national scale players. And, you know, there's always a bit of a tension between, you know, scale and cost and, and also wanting to make sure we're supporting as many local and regional suppliers as we possibly can. That looks very different in different places. So we operate on the West Coast, on the East Coast, in, you know, Colorado, as I've, as I've mentioned. And so, you know, supply chains just look different in all those different places. In California, it's quite easy to get locally produced fruit most of the year. On the East Coast, that's not always the that's not always the case. So you know we're we we have to always kind of toe that balance in building the supply chain between you know managing the number of truck miles that are that are being kind of put on the road with the cost of what we're bringing in, making sure that the meals are affordable, and then always making sure that that whatever's coming in our back door meets our our standards of of quality and ingredient standards. I'm curious, do you have any advice for anyone who might be starting? some sort of uh, CPG brand hoping to have a, a positive impact in terms of navigating supply chain? Any words of wisdom? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think when it comes to supply chain specifically, I think like really thinking through your scale and where both where you are today and where you want to be, because I think finding the right supplier partners who can understand and support that growth trajectory is really important. So some, and then, and then also like understanding, you know, when you're small, you might work with certain suppliers. And then as you grow, you might have to move to other suppliers just because of, because of scale. But I think always kind of thinking a couple of years down the road about where you're going to be and what your supply chain is going to need to look like, you know, not just today, but, you know, two or three years from now is, is one, one element of it. And then I think, you know, managing, we've always been incredibly focused on managing cost in our supply chain because we have so many constraints on the customer side that, you know, our, our customers only have the national school lunch reimbursement rate with which to pay us for the meals. Whereas I think, you know, some startup CPG companies sort of, they think about, well, what's it going to cost me to design my dream product? And then let me just add a margin on top of that. And then you end up with a, you know, (laughs) a $15 
granola bar or whatever, you know, like that's exaggerating, but um, you know, I think designing with cost and sort of price targets in mind is, is a way to, you know, for us, it's always been very important to make sure that our meals and our, and our products are accessible. And so, you know, having a cost target in mind as you're designing and kind of building your supply chain around a product is, is one way to ensure that your, you know, whatever product you're producing can be accessible to the market that you want to make it available to. That's amazing. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm curious in your journey of working to to leverage business as a force for good, what have been some of your biggest challenges and, and how did you move through them? Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I would say, and, and this kind of is is probably couched as a bit of advice for other entrepreneurs, you know, when we when we made the conversion to become a public benefit corporation, you know, we were a 15-year-old company making that conversion. We had quite a complex cap, cap table of investors. You know, the amount of kind of approvals that we had to secure to make that conversion was was just complicated and time-consuming. So I would say, you know, one learning is that if I were starting a company today, I would start it as a public benefit corporation <laughs> and not go through the conversion. I think one of the positives that we've seen kind of in this business as, as a force for good area is that, you know, if you're a business that's whose mission really is what drives your company value, it's a much easier path to, <laughs> to traverse because we, as, as we have grown, you know, every meal that we provide, every, you know, new region that we expand into is more impact. So it's, so, which is, I think different from some companies who are like, well, I'm going to sell a product that's, you know, not necessarily an impact focused product. And then on the side, I'm going to like give back to a community or I'm going to give back, I'm going to mm. give something away for free, you know, for us thinking about the, the, the true kind of integration of mission, our values and our kind of brand and our growth, you know, those things are all incredibly tied together and they're, and they grow with one another. So like investors look at, have looked at our company when they've invested in us and they've, you know, people sometimes ask, is there a tension between investors wanting you to get profitable or deliver impact? And we're like, the only way that we can deliver impact is to be profitable and to grow. <laughs> and so, you know, like making sure that all those things are, are tightly tied together can help to, to keep that mission intact, if that makes sense. Because if you start to pull back on the mission customers don't want to work with you anymore because then, then you're just like anybody else. So there's, so I think, you know, I, I feel like that's something that we've done really well is sort of tie together those, the sort of business strategy with the impact strategy and the, and the mission kind of footprint are all, are all very tightly woven together. That makes sense. And I think it's smart to do it that way too, to your point, then the more successful you are financially, the more, the more impact you're having. So that's a win-win for everybody. I'm curious, what are some of your fondest memories with Revolution Foods and this journey? You know, I think I think my fondest memories are always of like sitting down with kids in a lunchroom and, you know, getting their feedback on on our food. I mean, even when we were first starting, that's where we started as we started sitting down in lunchrooms with kids and asking them what did they like about their lunches and what did they want to see more of? And that feedback that we get is, you know, it's just it's like gold. It's every every bit of insight we can gain from, um, from kids helps, helps to make us better. So that's, I think that's one piece of it. And then, you know, really just like building the team as we've expanded into new markets. I think about, you know, when we, when we first opened our, uh, Washington DC area culinary center and 
you know, it was a very challenging time. We were growing fast. We, you know, we sort of brought in more business than we had expected to bring in. And, and the team that we brought together that year, I mean, this was 12 years ago now, many of them are still with us today because we went through such a challenging, you know, <laughs> such a challenging initial few months of just getting the business up and running in that, um, in that region. So, you know, the, it just makes me kind of think a lot about the the jobs that we've created out there and the and the careers that have been built within the company. It's a really, um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the most gratifying parts of the whole experience. What advice do you have for listeners that want to follow in your footsteps and use business as a force for good? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think if I think for anyone who is starting a business or thinking about starting a business, making sure that you're doing something that you really truly care about, you know, not just kind of starting a business to try out the entrepreneurial journey and and doing something you really truly believe in. You know, I think because you end up spending a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, you know, you want it to be something that feels really worthwhile. And I think, you know, building the right team around you and recognizing that, you know, there are different stages of a company and different kinds of team members that are going to that are going to be great for those different stages. You know, I always, I, I think people kind of look at, look at sort of building the team is like, how do you build the team and, and keep them together for the whole journey? And it's like, well, there are sometimes people that graduate from the journey and they move on to other things. And, and other times that you, that, you know, we recognize a need that we didn't know we were going to have, and we need to bring somebody new in. And so I think just kind of being open-minded and flexible and kind of, you know, I think intentional about, uh, about matching your team with the stage of, of company that you're building is an important aspect. That's amazing. Uh, any final thoughts or, or anything else you want to add that we haven't touched on yet? I think it's just been, you know, it's been, it's been quite a journey. And, um, and I think I, I do, we sort of set out for, on this journey thinking, you know, sort of wondering if we could, if we could use the power of kind of the private sector to deliver a social impact. And I think it's been an ongoing journey. It's still a journey that's happening, but I, but we've delivered a lot of impact along the way. So it's been, I, I think it's, I think it's truly possible. And I, I think, you know, for, for folks that are out there starting companies, I do think, you know, thinking about how do you use business for a, as a source for good, but for good for the most people also, mm. because I think there are a lot of mission driven companies that are creating very premium products that are not accessible to a lot of people. So I, I would just challenge folks out there to think about how to really truly make your ideas and products as accessible and transformative for as many people as possible. To learn more about Revolution Foods and some of the resources that Kirsten mentioned in this episode, head on over to the full show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. You can find a direct link to these show notes right in your podcast player's show notes for this episode. Also, if you are in New England on June 15th, be sure to get a ticket to the New England Build. This is an opportunity for the B Corp community to come together and learn from one another. And if you're not in New England, at the end of the day, B-Lab will be live streaming their State of the Bee address from the New England build. 
You definitely don't want to miss it. Links to both registration for the New England Build and the State of the Bee are also available in the show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more folks like yourself find this content. Until next time, be responsibly different. This episode was produced by yours truly, Ben Marine, and the music was written and performed by our very own Kevin Oates. To learn more about Responsibly Different and access the other resources we have available to you, visit responsiblydifferent.com. To learn more about our parent company, Dirigo Collective, and Responsibly Different Ventures, visit dirigocollective.com. Dot com. That's D-I-R-I-G-O collective dot com.